This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today we have a remarkable guest, and we're going to be talking about the deep state and UAP disclosure. Now, the deep state has become a kind of a meme. Anything we don't like about government, well, that's the deep state. But that's not the case. There is a real deep state that is, in a sense, being concealed behind that idea. There's something real there. And that is what we're going to be talking about today, because with the destruction of the Schumer Amendment, or the gutting, I should say, of the Schumer Amendment in the new uh, NDA, the new uh, National Defense Authorization Act, we saw it in action. Who knows the most about it? Well, that would be a gentleman who is, among other things, the author of the single most extraordinary book about the dark side of American government ever written. That would be Peter Lavenda. Peter, welcome to the show. I'm so glad to have you back with us. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here and talking about the deep state, among other things. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Uh, we're going to be talking uh, about that and, and so many other things. Now, what happened at the end of the year last year was that the Schumer Amendment, the UIP Disclosure Act, was gutted. And it was gutted by basically members of the House, on the House Intel Intelligence Committee, I believe, who were paid off, essentially, by Lockheed Martin. Uh, Senator Schumer said afterwards, it's beyond disappointing that the House has refused to work with us on all the important elements of the USP Disclosure Act during the NDAA conference. But nevertheless, we did make important progress, and that's true. Uh, for the first time, the National Archives will gather records from across the federal government on UAPs and have a legal mandate to release those records to the public if appropriate. Now, if appropriate means that anything classified that they happen to find, they will not they will have to take it through uh the vetting process in the in the intelligence community. In other words, it's a lot of words, but nothing happened. Okay, so where are we, Peter? Yeah, it's uh, we're between a rock and a hard place is where we are. Um, this this comes to the heart of what people think about the deep state, because it's really easy to project that concept onto all of Congress or the Pentagon or the military industrial complex. Um, Eisenhower warned us about the military industrial complex many, many years ago. I was a small child when that happened. Um, and he was worried because of what he saw happening at the end of World War II, which is that we sent people into Europe at the very end of the war. We were debriefing Nazi scientists. We were debriefing um, generals, people in the military class, the intelligence operations of Nazi Germany. And we began to get a grasp of how Germany had reorganized itself for total war. That was a doctrine that was promoted by one of Hitler's predecessors, actually. And what happened was this idea that the entire country, man, woman, and child, and every industry should be part of the, the total war uh, project. 
everyone should be part of the war. That meant all industries, the government, every every aspect, agriculture, everything should be geared towards towards uh, the the prosecution of a war. So the whole country was on a war footing. So our advisors came back from that experience and they started to advise our military and people in our government in the United States that this was what Hitler had done. This is how the Reich had been so successful so quickly militarily was that the entire country was geared towards war. Uh, it was on a war footing. It wasn't just you have an army fighting a war and you have a defense department budget and everybody else is carrying along on the side. The idea was to integrate completely the defense posture of a country with every other aspect of society, make it all, make everyone part of the war effort. And this led pretty quickly to what we call here the military industrial complex. Um, this happened right at the end of the war. We had the Soviet Union by 1946, 47, there was the Cold War had, had begun. Uh, there was the famous Iron Curtain speech. So now you had suddenly the entire world now is braced for yet another war. We just finished World War II, and now we have a war against uh, the Soviet Union and global com communism, let's say. So our country then became reorganized along those lines. Industry, uh, the universities, science, technology, uh, everything was starting to gear towards uh, a war footing. And when that happened, that meant that our intelligence agencies were also deeply involved in um, organizing people, investigating organizations. The whole McCarthy era happened where everybody was a communist. Everyone was suspected of being a communist. And so you had this remarkable situation in which the people who had been instrumental in creating our uh, defense against Nazi Germany, people like Oppenheimer, and some of the other scientists who were involved in those days in developing rocket technology and all of that were accused of being communists. And they were being replaced by Nazis that we had brought in under Operation Paperclip. And once that began to happen, once we had all of these people that were our mortal enemies, who had dropped bombs on London during the Blitz, who had used concentration camp labor, they became integrated into our defense apparatus into our military industrial complex. Eisenhower, who had fought the Nazis, is now leaving uh, the presidency. And he's warning the world that there's something really dark happening within the heart of our American democracy. There's something pernicious there. And it's extra legal. It's really beyond the reach of whatever laws we've already had instituted. So that we had to be very careful that we were in danger of, learn, of losing, and he put it in spiritual terms, of losing the soul of the country due to this military industrial complex. I think that was the beginning of what we're starting to call these days, the deep state. The deep state is a misnomer in a sense. It was, it meant something very specific in Turkey. Uh, what it really re referred to was the, the bureaucratic apparatus of a country, the people who are not elected, right? The people who just work day in and day out, uh, you know, 365 days a year, they work in the government. Uh, that's the deep state. These are people that don't change with administrations. There are the Department of Motor Vehicles as part of the deep, deep state from that point, point of view. So that's what it really indicated at first. But now we're using it to mean something a bit more uh, amorphous, something a bit more ambiguous. We can't quite put our finger on it, but we can try. And it's not necessarily our elected officials because they come and go. 
uh, if you're uh, if you're a representative, a congressman for one term or two terms, and then you're not anymore, are you really part of the deep state? Um, if you're a senator for one or two terms, are you really part of the deep state? The deep state is something embedded, something that doesn't change. Um, and these people generally are not elected. In other words, they're not subject to uh, political winds of change. This is something that just stays there and doesn't change. And we've had a UFO um, culture, we might say, in this country, which is kind of sub rosa. It's kind of quiet. Um, it, it surfaces every once in a while. There's like spasms like Roswell or, or, some, or the 1952 UFO sightings and that sort of thing, because we can't control that. But we can control our reaction. We can control the message. And whoever's at work controlling that message, we might refer to as the deep state. And here we are in a situation where a private company, Lockheed Martin, has played a role in preventing hmm. a major step forward in disclosure. Now, this is this is it's nakedly visible because this. Congress people, one of them especially, who was uh, who who torpedoed or, or or gutted the 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 act. Excuse me, folks. I have unbelievable allergies, and they're becoming uncontrollable. Uh, as some of you know, I've talked about this before. The visitors have a a little place on my leg that they will insert a needle into, and and will quell the allergies for a period of time. But unfortunately, this is getting less and less effective over the years. And it only la it used to last six months. Now it only lasts three or four weeks. And getting them to show up here physically in order to do it is not easy. So unfortunately, I'm struggling. Uh, I'm going to try going to an allergist. When I was uh, first involved in this back in 1985-86, I met Dr. David C. Webb. D Dr. Webb was d deeply involved, I suppose, in the deep state, as a matter of fact. in um, in uh, If you go look at his Wikipedia entry, you'll see he was an advisor to practically every alphabet agency on the, on, on, on the, on the list. In any case, he introduced me to an allergist who knew how to help me uh, cope with what happens to someone who has a lot of close encounter contact. Unfortunately, Dr. Webb has passed on. The allergist has long since disappeared. In fact, a couple of years after his very effective treatments, I went to uh, thank him for his work. And no one in the office that he had given me as his office address knew he existed. They'd never heard of him. So, any case, mm -hmm. uh, I, Peter, I would like to go back now to 1952 uh, because this is a very important year. The UFO flyovers uh, over the Capitol occurred. The uh, extremely high strangeness incident that uh, unfolded in West Virginia occurred. Uh, that was the uh, and. Uh, uh, there was a book about it, written about it, called Shoot Them Down, which said that the whole thing was connected and that there had been a shooting battle between the United States and uh, Air Force and 
some kind of an alien presence, or as I suppose the Air Force would say, a demonic presence. And uh, at that point also, in August of that year, I was recruited into a program for children. And you helped me try to locate at one point, very kindly, with your expert research skills, this man, Antonio Krauss, whose name I think I remember being from that program. Subsequent to uh, that effort you made, I also found a friend, my one of my oldest friends, in fact, who had also been recruited. And he remembered it. And unlike me, I don't remember anything about it, except I, my memories are very vague, as you know. But something was going on there. Something was being established. There was a conflict. And there was a a, a response to the conflict that in part involved children, in part involved the military, and is very, very tangled up in the occult. And what I would like to do now is if you could talk about the relationship between the occult and the hidden side of the United States government, which plays such a big role in sinister forces. Well, see, this is the the crux of the matter. And I don't want to sound alarmist and I don't want to sound like I'm totally off the deep end here, but in, in, in the project that I've been working on with Tom DeLong, the secret machines project, we, we are emphasizing the role of consciousness in understanding the, the phenomenon, the UFO phenomenon, let's call it. And consciousness is a huge aspect of it, as Jacques Vallée has said, as uh, John Keel has said, as so many others, uh, Hal Putov, a lot of people have said, and it reinforced this idea that consciousness is a, is a major aspect of it. When you're dealing with consciousness and you're dealing with lights in the sky and you're dealing with abductions and you're dealing with that entire range of, of things that we put under that umbrella of the UFO phenomenon, you are basically, um, you have to come face to face with the occult let's say we have to deal with what was occultism what is occultism and it, it's a kind of technology of consciousness uh, all those things that we see in the movies the rituals and the candles burning and the incense and spirits and all the rest of it is a is a spirituality is a, is a spiritual technology and by a spiritual technology we we are associating it with consciousness obviously so when you're talking about um all of these other issues, one of the problems that the government faces, and you mentioned basically, you, you alluded to the Air Force calling these things demonic. And that's for a very specific reason, because there are many people in the Air Force and in government in general, who when you bring up the subject of the UFO phenomenon, they immediately default to the idea that this is demonic or possibly angelic, but it's something supernatural it has to do with with things that we're not supposed to know, uh, as one that the very famous uh, quotation I think in John Alexander's book of a, a, one of the members of a, of a group that was studying UFOs started getting into this subject and he started running out of the room screaming, "You're not supposed to know this stuff until after you've died." And so it's this idea yeah. that he, this is a scientist and this was somebody involved with the military, and we get this all the time. There are people in government in the Congress who feel this way strongly, who have who have kind of put monkey wrenches in our 
programs for understanding the UFO phenomenon, for understanding remote viewing practices, for all of these things, psychokinesis, the paranormal studies have been uh, you know, hijacked uh, and, and taken off the board because people thought we were dealing with something demonic. And the Air Force is a great source of this kind of belief that there's something demonic about the UFO phenomenon. So well, I, once I, you get there, you're in occultism. Excuse me. I would agree with that. There is something demonic about it. I've lived that. God knows I've lived that. My poor wife has lived it. Uh, we had a we had a fetus stolen. I've had sexual uh, my semen stolen, and then we've seen we saw the results of that, and it was a terrible, horribly distorted boy. It was a monstrous. The whole thing, ghastly, and uh, so it, it, you know you can't deny. I mean, I'm you're not denying it. I know that this mm-hmm. has a terrible dark side to it, and you have to think to yourself, someone who is lo- locked into that re- level of reality must be in effect demonic, but at the same time, there's this other side to it that. You know, the scientist who said you're not supposed we're not supposed to know this until after we're dead. As soon as my wife passed on, things changed. Someone else got control of my relationship with this phenomenon. She did. And she controls it to this day. And it it changed instead of being beaten up and manhandled and treated like a attacked by corrupt souls. That's the only way I can describe it. Suddenly I was being kissed. I would say by a phenomenon that loved me very much was much bigger than I am. I was like an ant trying to dance with my wife who had become an elephant, but I, I was a terrible dancer even when she wasn't an elephant. So, um, uh, and this has stayed with me. This is where I am now. But there is a dark side, and I know that you know what it wants, and you understand its reality better than most. Uh, and so I'm actually incredibly remembering to take a break because I'm so fascinated with this. I always, when a, a show really rivets my attention, you're going to hear me say, oh, my God, I forgot the break. So, oh, my God, I forgot the break. We're going to take it right now. We'll be right back. We're talking to Peter Lavenda, the author of Sinister Forces and so many other extraordinary books. In fact, one of the most extraordinary people in this field. He keeps a low profile, but when we get him to speak and come out, it is always an extraordinary experience. I don't think Peter has ever done an interview on any show that was less than absolutely riveting and absolutely important. So, Peter, let me frame this question. There, is, there was in 2004 in Crabwood in the UK a UFO a crop formation that included a disc that was in, turned out to be an ASCII code that said, uh, beware the bearers of, fa- of, uh, of 
false gifts and their broken promises. There is good out there, much pain, but still time. We oppose deception. Now, I know the false gifts very well. I've got some of it in my office. It is the materials. It is the bodies. Those are the false gifts. And the fact that we have, to a degree, understood gravity and how to manipulate it using those gifts is great. But we haven't understood the propulsion system. So we can make a little thing that floats magically, but we can't make it go anywhere. Where are we, Peter, with this whole business of being seduced by black magic from literally the beyond? Well, we posited this, um, or I did in, in um, not in Sinister Forces, I guess it was in Secret Machines, but it's a similar concept, that at some point in our prehistory, um, there was contact, and that contact was profound enough. This is before recorded history, before written history. The contact was profound enough that it jump-started our, 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 our society. It jump-started civilization, basically, because it gave us these ideas of space travel on the one hand and immortality on the other. We got the the inspiration, let's say, to pursue both of these things at the same time. So space travel became embedded. If you look at ancient Egyptian uh, texts, if you understand about the mummification process and what was involved there, uh, the idea that the pharaoh would, would travel to the stars, but it, that it, uh, we would eventually have space travel. But also that travel to the stars also implied immortality. Um, it was life after death. It was, uh, or life without death. And we've been pursuing that ever since. The entire human race in one form or another has been pursuing this type of travel, either through consciousness, through rising on the planes, through going to different planets, uh, using consciousness alone on the one hand. And on the other side, it's uh, the idea of pursuing immortality, um, trying to increase longevity, extending it as much as, as possible. Uh, these are two things that are not necessarily embedded in our genetic code. Our DNA does not want us to be immortal, or else we would be immortal. The DNA wants us to reproduce and get out of the way. So there's a, there's an, there's another tendency among humans to want to live forever. There's a tendency to want to get off planet. And we think, we're positing, we're speculating that these two twin ideas, which are not logical, in terms of our DNA, are the result of contact. And therefore, what we're dealing with, we're dealing with forces that we don't understand. We don't know where this inspiration came from. We don't know where the, the impetus for this kind of research has come from. We've spent our, all of our blood and treasure on this as a planet in pursuing these objectives. Um, and at the same time, we have people we have groups of individuals today who are insisting to us that contact is benevolent, that contact is beyond any 
possibility of, of wrongdoing, that the, the others simply want us to live in peace somehow. And there's a lot of people in government and in what we're calling the deep state, people who, who know better, who have a vested interest in all of this, who believe that these forces are not benevolent, that they are actually, if not evil, if not intent on our destruction, they are at least not very helpful. Because where have they been, right? During the Holocaust, for instance, during the killing fields of Cambodia, during uh, genocides all over the planet, during massive wars, during, during, during the dropping of two atomic bombs on Japan. Where were the others then? What were they doing? What were they up to? Did they really have the best interests of humanity at heart? Or do they have a way of understanding our best interests in ways that we don't, that we can't, that we have no clue? And I think the only avenues open to human beings for understanding all of this is a spiritual approach, whether we call that religion or we call that occultism or or anything like any of those things. It's a consciousness approach. We have to break open some of the barriers that exist in our minds against this type of knowledge. Uh, and, but that's very dangerous, obviously. Uh, people go stupid from it or they go crazy from it or they become very cynical or very skeptical after a brush with this type of, of, of experience. So there's all sorts of pitfalls to it. Not everybody can do this. Not everybody wants to. Uh, not everyone has the time or the inclination to. But there is a different way of seeing the world and reality. And what is the symbol of that? It's the freaking UFO. I mean, something appears in the sky that shouldn't be there. It flies the way it shouldn't fly. It comes and goes at will. It teases our air force. It teases our ships at sea. It screws with us, our nuclear installations. It does all of this, but only as a kind of story. They don't actually do anything. They don't actually completely dismantle our missile systems. They don't destroy our aircraft. They don't blow up our ships. They show up and they leave. They show up and they leave like ghosts, like spirits, like phenomena of that kind, like spiritual phenomena, except at the same time, they're nuts and bolts. And it's that combination that we can't get our heads around. Nobody right. Nobody can, exactly. Well, you know, interestingly enough, uh, the, the craft that was f found by the Italians in 1933 uh, now that we know that happened and the research on that has been so solid that it did happen. It's not, it, it actually did happen. And it was brought to the Air Materiel Command after the war. It was studied by the Nazis and it was studied by the Italians. And I'm pretty sure that they made the Fokker and the Cipriani jet engines as a result of their study of this craft, not because it had a jet propulsion system at all, but because of the sound it made, hmm. which was a sound of loud rushing wind. And they related that to its propulsion system, even though that probably wasn't its propulsion system. That was just another illusion. But that illusion started the jet age. Right. I think that's remarkable. So it's not a, and then they left it behind for uh, to do the same thing to us that everything you're describing has done to us. 
not to touch us with anything except wonder and curiosity. But then there's another strain here, completely different. That, and I get back now to Jack and Helen Parsons and JPL and the, the Aleister Crowley connection and Thelema and the Gnostic Church and that whole strain coming, ending up, ending up deep inside the uh, whole Western rocketry and space effort and then compounded by the arrival of extremely sinister beings such as uh, Werner von Braun, who was already blood baptized into anti-Semitic hatred and uh, the dark side and became the leader of the, of, of the U.S. rocket effort in the 50s. So we embraced the dark side somehow. The bearers of false gifts. Tell us, what, tell us about Jack Parson and Helen, especially if how much you know about Helen, because I think Helen is is a very important factor here. Yeah, well, they both they both are. Uh, Parsons was just a phenomenal person. I mean, um, the there's a, a there was a television series called Strange Angel based on the story. It it was frustrating to me because they didn't use the real names of the real people and their matters of public record and why they wouldn't do that. I don't know, beyond my imagination. So I was a little bit upset with that aspect of it. Um, but Jack Parsons, um, you know, was a self-taught. He was an autodidact. I mean, there was no rocket science when Jack Parsons started this. Uh, he basically created it. Um, and there's even a, uh, a quotation by Werner von Braun that Parsons was the real father of the American rocket program. Um, and as we know, there's a crater on the far side of the moon, which is named after Parsons. And uh, when the Chinese landed uh, a, a spacecraft on the far side of the moon, they targeted uh, an area where there, there are craters for Jack Parsons and Theodore von Karman, who was Parsons' uh, mentor at, uh, at Caltech, a very famous scientist. So we have a person who is fascinated by rocketry and at the same time very fascinated by, at first, science fiction, uh, because in those days, rocketry and science fiction was the same thing. Nobody believed that a rocket could leave the Earth's atmosphere, the, the Earth's uh, 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 field, and actually go into space. They didn't believe that a rocket could travel through space because space is a vacuum and rockets can't travel through vacuums. I and mean, th these are all the, the beliefs at the time. So if you believed in rocketry and you believed in space travel, you were basically in a science fiction occult world. I mean, you were reading amazing stories. You were reading science fiction and gothic horror because that's your reality, right? Everybody would just make fun of you if you actually believed that a rocket could travel to the moon. And that we're talking scientists, not just lay people. Scientists in general thought it was impossible. Parsons did not. And another person on the other side of the planet from Parsons was Werner von Braun. He had the same dreams, the same ideas, read the same type of literature. And they were actually in communication, Parsons and von Braun, in the years before the war. Uh, so they were they were exchanging, you know, uh, concepts, theories, ideas about how these these rockets could be built. But Parsons then eventually 
becomes involved with an occult organization he just sort of uh runs into uh this this occult society called the ordo templi orientis which was a uh a creation of well it was led by Aleister crowley it was actually a german occult lodge and it started its life in germany around the turn of the century and it was uh dealing with occultism ritual magic that sort of thing founded by people who had been involved with freemasonry and different types of groups like that and so there was this idea of making contact with what we today would call extraterrestrial beings but these were demons angels ghosts spirits of various kinds Crowley then became involved with the OTO. He had already been involved with the Golden Dawn, and he started taking over the OTO. It's a long story, but eventually he became the person who ran it. Um, and the idea was that there was a new age coming, and the old age would be destroyed, and a new age would be created. And in the text that he supposedly received in 1904 in Egypt contains the phrase, I am the warrior lord of the 40s which is a very prescient statement for 1904. Uh, the 1940s so. was obviously World War II. And so there was a prediction, I am the warrior lord of the 40s. And nobody knows what that means, right? At that time, there was no way of knowing what 40s meant. Uh, so the war happens, of course, and Parsons is deeply embedded in this because he's developing uh, uh, fuel solutions for the Navy and for, the Air, and for what would become the Air Force. And he was building rockets and shooting rockets. But at the same time, he became the head of that OTO branch in the United States, which at that point was really the only one. And so he was involved, yes, with uh, with Helen Northrup. And um, yeah, there's a whole bunch of information. If you start pulling apart those pieces, you get into a lot of very strange places. There was Helen Northrup and there was um, uh, the younger sister, uh, there was L. Ron Hubbard got involved in this thing before he founded Scientology. He runs off, I guess it's with Helen, am I right? Uh, marries Helen, even though he's already married. So there's that whole problem there. Steals Jack Parsons' money. Parsons gets some of it back. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a soap opera uh, of a story, but it involves occultism because Parsons and Hubbard were conducting rituals in the desert together. Yes, invoke uh, a spiritual force and have it incarnate on the planet. And that the, was um, the goal. The uh, you, you mentioned earlier, you briefly mentioned uh, that ritual is a is a sort of science of uh, a spiritual science, and we have been taught very carefully not to believe that. Mm -hmm. We've been taught. To believe that that's all silly child's play and nonsense right in order to leave it to its own devices but i know that's very definitely not the case and that not only that that experimenting with it sticks to you or rather you stick to the experiments more like mm -hmm. a fly sticking to fly paper once you get started down that path there's no escape and it colors everything subsequently. So it's tainted, in my opinion, the entire American uh, uh, movement toward a journey, toward journeying toward outer space and probably that of other, other countries as well. It's as if 
as soon as we began to try to leave, the dark side went into overdrive to make sure that we only became involved with false gifts and broken promises. That's my impression, and that's why we're still here, why we have still flying around the planet in jet engines, slowly creeping along at 600 miles an hour, if that, uh, and polluting the hell out of the atmosphere as we do it. We're trapped, Peter, on a dying planet. And I think we're looking at who trapped us. So my next question, and we're going to take this up again after the break, involves that who. Who is behind all of this? And I'm not necessarily talking about a human presence. I know that you are aware and understand much darker forces than any human ever could be. So we'll talk about that in just a moment. We're talking to Peter Lavenda, his magnificent set of books, uh, a three-book set, I believe, uh, Sinister Forces. is it, He describes it as a grimoire of American political witchcraft, and it is beyond belief. It's the finest book of its kind or book series of its kind ever written by a very long shot. There's nothing that actually comes close to it. It is a classic and terribly important, and you should not fail to read it. Or I don't believe it's on Audible, but it, it's too bad it isn't because it's a long, be a long journey to make it into an audio book for sure. Uh, but nevertheless, it's critical. It's foundational. Anyone who wants to be free has to read it, has to know what it contains. Now, Peter, what is this? Uh, the, the, uh, on book one of Sinister Forces, the you you see a conjuring, two individuals conjuring a, a spirit in a graveyard standing on the seal of the United States of America. I thought to myself when I first saw your cover, I thought, that's the scariest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the thinking behind that. Who is that figure? Actually, I'm kind of proud of that because that was my design. Um, I I took the D and Kelly, a famous uh, print of Dr. John D and Edward Kelly. These were two magicians in Elizabethan England. Uh, Dr. D uh, was the a personal advisor to Queen Elizabeth I. Uh, he was a mathematician. He had translated Euclid for the first time into English. So he had a very excellent um, academic background. But at the same time, he was deeply involved in the study of spirituality, particularly in the study of magic. And he was trying to approach magic from a very systematic way, uh, trying to figure out what all of that was about. But at the same time, remaining very Christian, uh, very religious, and basically afraid of what he was doing. But Dee was um, a fascinating individual, but he needed the help of Edward Kelly. And Edward Kelly was a kind of ne'er-do-well. Uh, he had been uh, in prison for various things in the past, but he had the excellent ability to scry, to look into a showstone, to look basically into a crystal ball and to see all the things that Dee wanted to see, but could not because he did not have that innate ability. So That's this was a, Edward Teller. 
Edward Kelly. Kelly. Oh, Kelly. Okay. Kelly. Yeah, I, I I misunderstood you. I thought no, it can't be right. No. No, no, no. no, 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 no. Okay, I understand. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. No problem. So Kelly and Dee would then go throughout Europe, and they would be conducting uh, basically ritual magic in various places, talking to the angels, getting um, an angelic language with its own alphabet, with its own vocabulary, a complete functioning language that linguistic scholars say is kind of impossible to do, to create a complete language out of whole cloth. But they managed to do it in the 17th century, um, early 17th century. Uh, so th these are people who were um, very ahead of their time, uh, getting all sorts of really uh, elaborate information that we still to this day don't completely understand. Uh, Dee kept all sorts of charts and pages and pages of, of symbols and everything else that we're still trying to decipher to this day. We're still trying to figure out what he was doing with all of that. So that was Dee and Kelly. Um, so what I did is I put them in that very famous uh, uh, print of them conjuring a spirit in a cemetery. But instead of the magic circle, uh, I put in basically the uh, the seal of the CIA. So that's they're standing on the CIA seal seal in the middle of this uh, of this uh, cemetery conjuring spirits. Ah. And that was my, my was my my creation. I said this is a great way to introduce sinister forces. This is what we mean. It's the unity of our intelligence agencies with the paranormal. You know, the um, year 1947 was a very important year. This is the year that the Roswell incident happened. It is also the year that the Air Force was hived off from the Army and made into an independent military organization. And it is the year that the National Security Act was passed and the CIA was formed. This is the year both that we discovered the presence of this the physical side of this thing and created the infrastructure that would support the secrecy that has remained ever since. And I'm haunted by that idea that of uh, you'll have to remind me of who it was who said, uh, this is, these are things you're not supposed to know until after you die, because that happens to be, exactly the opposite of the truth. These are things we need to know now. Who said that, Peter? And I, if you give me a second, I can find it. It's yeah, been, please do. We'll wait. John Alexander. It was John, yeah. yeah. In John's book. You know, I've got to get John back on the show. Uh, we haven't had a show with John Alexander in a while, and he's been a... John Alexander, folks, and I have been friends for many years and um, now Peter has a nice suit, I must say. Look at that beautiful coat. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, uh, uh, I and you know, in um, uh, Bill Moore's uh, or William Cooper's book, excuse me, um, uh, "Behold a Pale Horse," there is a fake note from John Alexander. Uh, activating me and uh, uh, oh 
goodness, I've slipped his non to slip my name. Uh, his name is slipping my mind. My mind is slipping my mind. Though actually, I'm very much intact up here. But uh, uh, in any case, the two of us are uh, uh, listed as being activated by John Alexander. And unfortunately for the author of the forgery, he got John Alexander's rank wrong. So it's pretty obvious that it's a forgery because a military officer doesn't send too many letters around on a uh, piece of stationery that misstates his rank. So in any case, John and I have been friends a long time. And uh, I don't think he is involved in sinister forces. I don't think so. The person who said that was an aerospace engineer, Dr. Walt Labarge. That's right. Now I remember. And also, sorry, it took was so Dick long. Hoagland was the other person on that memo. Mm-hmm. Me and Dick Hoagland. So do you, do you have any knowledge of Lafarge at all? or uh... Uh, Just uh, basic uh, background information on him. He was an aerospace engineer under the sec and he was the undersecretary of the army from 77 to 1980. One of the developers of the Sidewinder missile. And he later became an executive at Lockheed. So, uh, full circle, we're back to Lockheed. Yeah. Right. Well, Lockheed is the central figure in this whole thing. It always has been. Uh, it, it always has been. And if you, once you really get into the depths of this, you keep finding Lockheed at every corner, at every turning mm-hmm. of the maze. As you wander, walk through this maze, every Every door leads into another aspect of the relationship between Lockheed, UFO secrecy, and frankly, dark forces. Because, you know, there was an old, uh, I mean, he, his name was Norman Thomas. He was a, a, a real far left-wing labor guy of the 20s and 30s. And, you know, I'm not so sure I agree with a lot of his political ideas, but I do agree with one thing he said. Where the secrets start, the republic stops. Hmm. Insofar as we do not know the truth, we are not free. That's the that great phrase, the truth shall make you free. When we're being denied the truth, it's a form of spiritual dictatorship of the most sinister kind. So thank you, Lockheed Bart and hmm. Air Material Command and Everybody who got the ball rolling from Harry Truman to uh, General Twining to all of the others, thank you, but no thank you. Where are we going, Peter? We're in such a dark time. It looks increasingly like the planet's in really serious trouble. And there's there are wars all over. It has a a horrifyingly similar look to it that did in the 1890s and early 1900s with many small, nasty wars coming here and there and leading toward a kind of increase in the energy of violence somewhere deep within us, the dark side rising up from below. 
and we have these UFOs flying around, taunting us, at the same time drawing us out and suppressing us, mm-hmm. filling us with curiosity, but then hiding. What in the, what in the world can explain this? Are we in some kind of mortal danger? spiritual mortal danger, Peter, do you think? Well, I, you know, well, yeah. (laughs) I'm trying to think of a nice way to put this, but there's no way to sugarcoat this. We have on the one side an ecological disaster in the making, which is just the planet itself. Is it going to remain livable for much longer? And on the other side, we have a political upheaval all across the planet that's taking place where forces of, of um, I don't know how to characterize them, repressive forces, let's put it that way, are fighting with normal human endeavors for that would lead towards more relaxation and more, um, I hate to use words like liberal and conservative, but let's look at it from that point of view. You have a, a rise of fascism around the world. There's no doubting that. And just and it's unbelievable because we fought wars about that. But as I I mentioned in Sinister Forces, we we made a huge mistake by bringing in the paperclip scientists because we didn't only bring in their technology. We we brought in a kind of virus, you know, a a kind of uh, of of evil with their 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 belief systems. Their belief systems are inextricable from their technology. And I think we don't understand that yet. We don't understand how a belief system and a technology might be connected. We're going to find out really soon in a really unpleasant way because of artificial intelligence. We are building artificial intelligence platforms without being aware that we're building within those systems our own biases and our own prejudices. Our own our own viewpoints on the world of what's real and what isn't, what's good and what is not good, what's what's bad, what's evil, what's what's positive, because we don't really understand that ourselves. We never really did. Our technology has outpaced our um, cultural and spiritual progress to the point where now we're dealing with, you know, as Oppenheimer famously did, he, you know, we, he created a bomb and now he's become death, the destroyer of worlds. And there, so there's a moral dimension to our technology and we refuse to accept it we refuse to understand it we don't have the we don't have the gifts quite frankly we don't have the ability to understand this so we're just going to go headlong into the future without really thinking of the ramifications without taking the the steps that we need to take to protect ourselves and our fellow humans against the the ravages of this thing i mean we lived i mean i grew up as you did around the same time in, during the Cold War, um, especially in the 1950s and 1960s, where we grew up with the threat of complete annihilation. And at any point, the Soviets would launch missiles, we would launch missiles, and we would have mutually assured destruction. There's a there's a spiritual dimension to that. It's not all about science and technology. There's a human dimension to this. And we just developed the bombs, and we developed more and more of the bombs and more of the missiles because there didn't seem to be any way to stop doing that. We had to keep doing that because we had to protect ourselves from the other guys who were developing their bombs. And so it became ridiculous. And at some point, everybody said, we've got to calm down. 
we have to you know take apart these missiles we have to 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 reduce our stockpiles and all the rest of it it was there the feeling was there the understanding was there but it didn't last very long and then eventually we had asymmetrical warfare so now we have small groups of people with access to nuclear weapons to fissionable materials small countries and small groups we have chemical and biological weapons so the dis the destruction of the planet is one thing the destruction of governments of systems of protecting us from our worst impulses and the worst impulses of others are also falling apart and people are saying well we want strong leaders not understanding that, that strong leader is the problem right we don't want the kind of strong leaders they're talking about because those strong leaders will goose step us right into conflagrations and military conflicts um, so we don't understand it we are not the equal of our technology yet so there is an evil that we're courting we don't understand that there's something behind the scenes that's that's very powerful we have i wrote about it in sinister forces at length that the amount of coincidences and synchronicities that multiply around these political events should be enough to tell you there's something else at work there i'm not saying that i know what it is i'm not saying i could reach out and describe it to you with a face and with a name but it's it, this force is there it exists it's a, it's a sinister force um we put our finger on it a number of times we know there's something mysterious out there that's behind these major events we know that our spiritual lives have been unsettled by certain assassinations by wars by all of this we've become different people we lose parts of our humanity or we come across parts of our humanity we didn't know existed and we're scared to death of looking at it but there there are experiences that will take you out of that you know there are spiritual experiences that will take you to a different place and when you're in that different place you're going to see the whole thing differently and you may actually come away with a bit more hope after having that experience and not only with a sense of dread or the sense of um of uh, the alarm that i i wrote about in sinister forces there are there are ways to sort of lift your head out of it and take a look around and see what the alternatives are uh but we're running out of time well can you give us a couple more minutes just to tell us somewhat give us some idea of what those what those are what those means are well they've been around forever uh and we're just now starting to to look at them with a with a with an open mind for instance there have been practices called celestial ascent that have been around for thousands of years uh, since the days of the shamans in Siberia, since the days of the Egyptians and the Sumerians and all of that. There, the idea that you can gradually, step by step, approach the realm of the stars. And by doing that, you will come across beings that will either help you or stop you uh, to go to the next step, to go further. And the ability to go that distance really depends upon your own preparations your own sincerity the willingness that you have to look at your own uh, faults and your own weaknesses as well as your strengths to assess what you need to take with you on that journey and uh, people have been doing this um there's a jewish system for it called hechalot or merkava mysticism which means rising on those planes uh the prophet of, of islam did the same thing uh, something called the hijra 
or the Isra. He did a, a night voyage from where he was living in Saudi Arabia to the temple in Jerusalem, and from there rose on seven heavens. This, this is a, a common theme. It's it's everywhere. It's in China with the pace of you, uh, a kind of mystical uh, dance in which you mimic the seven stars of the Big Dipper and go to the seat of immortality. I'm going to be giving a course on that, actually, uh, a little later on in, in February, just to try to examine it and to try to show people that this this is something that is done, that not all occultism is dark. It's not all tending towards you know evil experiences. But there is a kind of, and I mentioned this once before in another place, there is a kind of Twin Peaks aspect to all of this, however. And Twin Peaks comes probably pretty close for a uninitiated, let's say, understanding of what we're talking about. The idea that there are coincidences that multiply, that you have experiences that you cannot explain that don't seem rational, that there are that there's there are different realms of existence, different realms of experience, let's put it that way, in which once you've had that experience, you can come back and kind of reevaluate your own life, you reevaluate your own experience and have a better handle on what's going on elsewhere. It's it's a lot to to, to digest, I know, in, in one setting, but the idea is that you can do this and it can give you some tools for understanding a little better what's happening. You don't have to rely upon pronouncements from the Pentagon or from the, the quote unquote deep state. You can uh, visit the deep state yourself. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> well, Peter, that's a wonderful place to end. And do email me when you have specifics about that course, because I want to put it up on social media and on the website, of course. I'm you. sure you'll get lots of, of, of participants from unknown country. And folks, if you, were, you uh, are a free listener to unknown country, you notice you've gotten the whole show again, which is fine. Uh, I, I didn't forget to... Uh, cut it off. I didn't want to because this is very important material. And I would like to leave you all with a thought that reflects what Peter just said. And once again, it's from the Crabwood Formation, which is probably the most important uh, thing that has been said by the visitors, by the good side of the visitors ever. Uh, and don't ever, you, you go on the internet and you'll find that probably intelligence community uh, motivated people are frantically trying to debunk that formation. It was real. And it's really important. Remember the last words of it. There is good out there. We oppose deception. You are looking at somebody who opposes deception in here, Lavenda. And the course he is going to teach is a course in empowering your own ability to do the same. Peter, thank you so much for being with us on Dreamland. Thank you. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.